an alleged military UFO whistleblower comes forward, scientifically studying UFOs, and more right now on UFO Mod Pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. And I'm Marine Ellsbury. Our co-host, Ryan Sprague, will be joining us later with our interviewee. But uh, right now, it's just Jason and I. That's right. And like always, let's get the show started by discussing some UFO-related stories that have been in the news lately. On Saturday, February 13th, an individual claiming to be a former petty officer in the U.S. Navy filed an interesting report with MUFON. That's the Mutual UFO Network. The report says, I was a radio man, third-class petty officer at Naval Telecommunications Center within Naval Air Station Moffett Field from February 86 to October 89, having maintained a top-secret special background investigation slash extremely sensitive information, NATO slash single integrated operational plan, compartmental security clearance. I was required to deliver top secret code word designation COSMIC to SRI, ESL, Sylvania, Lockheed Skunk Works, TRW, Raytheon, Berkeley Labs, and Lawrence Livermore Labs, and other think tanks throughout Silicon Valley. In addition, we had a GS-11 employee who was transferred from a joint U.S.-U.K. communications station north of London after working at that site for a dozen years. He said it was an NSA-U.K. facility tasked with tracking UFO, including Rendlesham Forest incident. He said that UFO ET were real and that hopefully disclosure would happen in my lifetime since he was in his early 60s at the time. I'm not reporting a UFO sighting, rather a UFO-related experience. I have copies of my security clearances. I personally handled, viewed, and delivered thousands of documents involving UFO ET projects. My security agreement with the U.S. government expired in October 2014. At this point in my life, I would like to share my knowledge in hopes that someone will be able to use it effectively towards disclosure. Now, this report caught the attention of various international media outlets, including the U.K.'s Daily Express. And, you know, these things are always interesting. The claims made by these whistleblowers are interesting and uh, certainly make big news in the UFO crowd. Yeah, and I think as long as, I mean, with a lot of these cases, a lot of people claim to have all these clearances and, um, you know, cosmic uh, Mm -hmm. clearance and top secret. Man, that guy's title was so long on whatever it was. But, you know, this, again, is all from the mouth until we see documented proof. Well, and a problem, yeah, the big problem with this story, and it's, it's still spreading around and people are posting it on Facebook and making big claims about it. But a big problem is that a lot of media outlets are reading too much into it and reporting things that aren't there. So those things then get re-reported and the story just spirals out of control, you know, asserting things that this guy didn't actually say. So, yeah, in the headlines, I've been seeing people are claiming that this guy has thousands of top secret documents that he's going to release. No, he didn't say that. He's he didn't even say <laughs> that he has documents. He says he has copies of his security clearance. He says he handled documents related to UFOs. He doesn't say he has documents related to UFOs. He's just saying that he saw stuff 
and he wants to tell people that he saw stuff. And if it's legit, this is great. I mean, as always, we're always trying to get more people to come forward, especially people that um, were in military positions. If unknown aircraft they saw, whether they were pilots or on the ground, um, these are always very, very uh, strong accounts of unknown objects, whether it be foreign uh, secret aircraft or something anomalous. You know, Mm -hmm. that's uh, really yet to be seen. However. We don't have a lot of details here. We don't have any proof. And so right now, not saying this guy has any motivation outside of maybe wanting to share his story. Right. But uh, don't read too much into anything yet until we get some more uh, background on this. And I will and- point out that uh, Nick Pope, who manned the UFO desk for the at the Ministry of Defense, um, apparently has said that he knows who this person is and uh, – says that his background can be verified. But he also says that reading what the guy says about his background and the security clearances, Nick says that that obviously shows that he's an insider, you know, knows what he's talking about. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, anybody can dig up this kind of information. And certainly in in, uh, conspiracy circles, a lot of these security clearance terms and things are are passed around all the time. So Especially I mean, if you really wanted clearance. to, yeah. So if you really wanted to pretend that you were, you know, this insider for some reason, it's not difficult to come up with terminology that sounds like you are who you say you are. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, and you know, uh, Morgan Beale, the uh, state director of MUFON in Florida. Um, you know, is looking into this, I, I believe, and or at least has spoken to the media about this current report. So we'll see if they uh, try to do any digging on it or whether it's just that's all she wrote. We'll see. But, you know, there's a topic that's been coming up a lot again, and this seems to every couple of years, uh, whether or not scientists uh, are into UFOs. And yeah. I think this is it's kind of a crazy topic because it's so generalized, like no, not every scientist is into UFOs, but also it doesn't mean every scientist is not into UFOs. In fact, mm-hmm. there are tons of scientists who are openly into studying the subject uh, and have written about it. And there's a pair of scientists who have recently published a book that's called The Extraterrestrial Encyclopedia. Pretty cool topic. Um And this happened this February, and astronomer and science writer David Darling with astrobiology professor Dirk Schultz-McCooch released this 464-page encyclopedia that's described as an A to Z of the search for life in the universe. The book's official description details entries cover astrobiology, the origins and evolution of life, the hunt for exoplanets, SETI, and extraterrestrial life in science fiction, philosophy, and popular speculation, which includes UFOs. The book is written in an engaging style for the layperson and contains numerous black and white illustrations. So uh, Air and Space website wrote about this on February 16th, and Schultz-McCooch comments on the inclusion of UFOs in the book, which is obviously what we're interested in, kind of, at the moment. 
Our encyclopedia does include entries on UFOs, but views them from a critical scientific perspective. Government agencies and SETI scientists launched efforts to investigate reported sightings, such as the Roswell incident, and we present the findings when available. The scientific method, which involves experimental testing and repetition, is notoriously difficult to apply in these cases, but it did help solve many claimed encounters with rather mundane explanations, such as natural phenomena in the upper atmosphere. The remaining unresolved cases are of great interest to science. Unfortunately, due to their controversial nature, not many scientists are willing to investigate them. It is not unscientific, of course, to hypothesize that alien intelligence have visited or are visiting us, but it would be incredibly difficult to prove. Remember Carl Sagan's statement, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So Schultz McCooch was a member of the scientific team that concluded in 2014 that the Milky Way is home to 100 million planets that can sustain complex alien life. And it isn't the first time this science duo has written about extraterrestrials. So Darlene and Schultz McCooch teamed up back in 2011 to write, We Are Not Alone, Why We Have Already Found Extraterrestrial Life. And this book's available on Amazon. I'm eventually trying to get my hands on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very interesting concept. And again, it explores so many different notions of life in the universe and also whether or not we have any evidence of it visiting Earth. And the statements he makes about UFOs are so perfect, and they're exactly what we say all the time. You know, I just love his attitude towards it. It's this attitude that many scientists share, and I wish that uh, many others would pay attention to as well. I mean, it is scientific to look at these and, and contemplate the possibilities, he points out the importance of those remaining unsolved cases. Yes, of course, they're of great interest to science. So this guy's awesome. These guys are on the right track, and I can't wait to read that book. Yeah, uh, cool, cool times. Yeah. Well, in our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for a new generation, on each episode of UFO Mod Pod, we highlight a historical UFO case. And today, because we just briefly mentioned it in the news, we're highlighting the 1980 Rendlesham Forest incident. This case is complicated, and there are lots of different elements to it. But here's a quick summary of the case. The Rendlesham Forest incident took place in Suffolk, England in 1980. Also known as Britain's Roswell, the multi-day Rendlesham Forest incident occurred in Rendlesham Forest, as the name implies, near twin NATO bases RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters that were leased to the United States Air Force at the time. In the early morning hours of December 26th, Airman First Class John Burroughs and Sergeant Jim Penniston, U.S. Air Force security policemen, were on patrol when they observed lights in the sky that descended into the forest. They initially thought that an aircraft might have crashed, so they went into the forest to investigate. They noticed a glowing object casting a bright white light that lit up the forest. As they approached, they were shocked to see the source of the light was a metallic, triangle-shaped craft that had landed or was hovering just off the ground. Penniston claims that he touched the craft during his observation, and he noticed strange symbols on the craft's surface. The patrolman watched this craft slowly maneuver away, then rapidly accelerate out of sight. Investigators returned to the landing site the next day and noticed three depression marks in the ground forming a triangle, suggesting that the craft did land. Scorch marks were seen on nearby trees, and radiation levels were recorded, which the Ministry of Defense later determined were considerably higher than normal background radiation. A strange red light appeared in the forest a couple nights after the first sighting. Bentwater's deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, took a team to investigate. The light pulsed as it moved through the forest, and it appeared to drip a molten substance. 
Alt and his team witnessed this UFO separate into multiple objects and disappear. Then multiple UFOs appeared in the sky. These fast-moving objects with red, green, and blue lights displayed exceptional maneuverability, performing sharp, rapid turns. These UFOs remained in the sky for more than an hour, and they even shot light beams down to the ground, both at Woodbridge's weapons storage area and at Halt and his team. Other base personnel reportedly witnessed additional UFO activity, and, as with any multi-witness situation, not all witness testimony associated with this case is consistent. A nearby lighthouse has been offered as a possible explanation for what military personnel observed in Rendlesham Forest, and some even posit that the whole thing was a hoax. But the military witnesses stand by their assertions. And this, okay, this is one of the most drama-filled cases. It really is. I have ever seen. So there's definitely a lot of back and forth between people that were allegedly involved, uh, claiming other people weren't involved that were there or, you know, that people are lying, uh, not regarding what happened, but um, they all stick to the fact that they saw a UFO. But there's a really interesting uh part to this case that's developed recently. And this is, you know, a case from 1980 to show you how much um, unsolved cases still uh, can evolve as time goes on. Right. John Burroughs uh, uh, was trying to get his medical records because he's having a lot of health problems recently. And uh, the United States Air Force said, uh, our records show you were not in the service at this time. Um, so he, uh, and his lawyer, uh, tried to petition to get these records released and, and he got the, um, they corrected the records that he was indeed serving time, but they told him that with the help of John McCain. Yes. Uh, right. Correct. Um, that he could not, they said your, your medical files are classified though. You can't have those. Um, to which they assumed was the government admitting that, the UFO or he was injured because of this incident. Um, you know, that's a little bit of a stretch, I would say, but um, it still is very important. They got um, validation that, yes, he was in the service at this time and he is now granted full medical disability. Um, so they look like they're saying, yes, we're the cause of the problem, but uh, you can't see why. And this um, is, yeah, this is a constantly evolving case. Year, so many years have gone by and, and so many weird twists and turns this case has taken for sure. And the MOD's investigation was inconclusive, but they oddly determined that the incident posed no significant threat to national security. That's an odd determination when you've got strange things, you have no idea what they were. But curiously, as Nick Pope has said some MOD UFO files covering the time period of the Rendlesham Forest incident have been destroyed seemingly without proper authorization. So that's an interesting nugget there too. Right. And, and uh, you know, we have the Charles Holt tape um, that's been transcribed of, of the evening of, of going out to the craft allegedly. Um, there are so many components to this case. And now, you know, there's even the UFO trail uh, there. If you go visit, you can walk down the UFO trail. Um, That's right. But again, this has been very, very drama filled within the UFO community, you could say. And uh, there's a lot of different books you can read on it and a lot of different varying opinions. And it's very hard to come to a conclusive uh 
giant picture of what's going on if you uh read too much into to the drama i would say keep an open mind read all perspectives and um you know something weird happened i don't know if it was a hoax or i don't think it was a hoax i think that something weird happened uh how far that goes or whether actually the lighthouse was a cause um is yet to be seen in my opinion Yep, and our co-host Ryan Sprague is uh, writing a play about the Rendlesham incident too. I believe it's called In the Forest. In the Forest. Yeah, so we'll, we're we're waiting for that. That'll be fun. But yeah, definitely a a complex case, a drama filled case, and a case with lots of differing opinions and information. So have fun with that. Yeah, seriously. Well, our guest on the show today is our friend Micah Hanks, an author, paranormal researcher, internet radio host, philosopher, musician, and sometimes a Southern gentleman. Micah, buddy, it's so good to talk to you again and have you on our new show, UFO Mod Pod. Thanks for coming on, buddy. How could I not? You know, I mean, UFO Mod Pod. The name alone sold me. You had me at Mod Pod. Well, that's that's really why we named it that, because we knew it would appeal to you and others. But uh, you are a podcaster yourself, uh, many times over. You're even a published author on the topic of podcasting. Um, but you do have a wonderful show, The Grayling Report, and you just kind of rebooted a, a video show that uh, you've done in the past, right? Paranormal Report? Well, yeah, it's been a funny thing. You know, Clayton Morris and uh, Jim Harold a long time ago were doing that video thing, which at the time was really the first uh, pretty significant like video type show that was coming along. Now, it went underground very quickly, and there was another one with a couple of fabulous hosts that I can think of that was based out of Arizona that went uh, online there shortly afterward and went for a while, but I digress. Uh, so <laughs> he decided to contact oh, me. You. Uh, oh, I know. you. <laughs> but he, uh, he decided to contact me and said, you know, I'd like to revive this. Uh, thanks due in part, I think, to the popularity of shows like Spacing Out. And so um, when we brought it back, uh, the program, of course, is the Paranormal Report. Jim Harold uh, was the mastermind behind that. But really, as you guys probably know, producing a video podcast uh, on a weekly basis uh, and editing thereafter, uh, even when it's designed around not having to have a lot of edits, it's very time consuming. So the latest incarnation that we did the other night, we were trying, and this is Jim's thing, he loves trying new technology. And so we were messing with Blab. And have you guys played with Blab yet? I have not. I was going to ask you about Blab. I haven't. I went on and kind of uh, did a little poking around when I saw Jim post about it. Yeah, yeah. I did uh, Jim's Halloween Blab, Micah. Um, a lot of fun. Yeah. I was in a Broadway theater at the time that was supposedly haunted, and uh, I was just texting him right from there. And it's it's really cool, like how interactive it is with the listeners. And I thought it was really cool. So I'm glad to see you guys going that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of cool because i got to be honest, uh, let's say that the four of us wanted to get together and, and just have a, a, a round table just for fun sometime. You know, everybody pours a beer. It's, you know, it's a Thursday night. The cool thing about Blab is that apparently there are a lot of people on there. It integrates with Twitter, and so we're all sharing information via Twitter. Um, but we just kind of launched this thing. Jim threw out a quick memo. I put a little thing up on Twitter. Uh, we had like 230 people within the first 35 minutes. 
that were live uh, viewers. And frankly, I think that at some point it actually crashed as a result of that. We had to restart the blab and we only had about 55 or so come back after that. But it was great because we were taking calls and unlike a lot of, uh, you know, web forums that, you know, are kind of like, well, you know, you, you <laughs> expect anything because that's what you're going to get. There were a lot of people, very intelligent, very insightful views calling in, uh, sharing their personal experiences. Often, in, in fact, most of them, I think, were calling in from their smartphones. So, you know me, I'm I'm always interested in the integration of technology and communication with regard to the kind of research we do. And yeah, it was super cool. And uh, it's definitely something maybe we should all mess around with sometime, too. So it's it's kind of like Periscope on steroids? Sort of, yeah. Maureen, <laughs> what happens is, is you know, you, you set up, uh, it, it really kind of is functional and integrates with your browser. Uh, in addition to Twitter as well. You can sign in with Twitter, but then you go up into your bra browser and you can uh, select your audio and video settings. And then there are four boxes, Brady Bunch style, in which people actually appear. But there's a chat area, there's a, a, post, a posting area on the other side of the screen specifically for questions from the viewership. And if you've got open places, people can call in and actually participate in these conversations. So I have to say, is I mean, it, they're, they're getting a few of the kinks worked out, but as far as you know, a kind of crowdsourcing. Well, I don't know if crowdsourcing is a proper term, but in the sense that you're you're tapping into an audience and allowing them to participate. So, in terms of audience participation, this was really just one of the the funnest and coolest little things we've we've done along those lines. And I think Jim thinks it's viable for using for the paranormal report. I mean, keep in mind you can always record the audio separately and put that up as a podcast, and then just use the blab as a way to interact with one another and with listeners. So, yeah, I found it really cool. Very cool. Uh, so, so are you guys currently also doing an audio version of Paranormal Podcast, or is it Blab uh, specific? Well, what I, we had been doing was video, and then when video became too labor intensive, I argued with Jim. Uh, again, I do love podcasting, and like you know, Jason pointed out, yeah, I, I did write this book about uh, what I call Maverick Podcasting, the complete guide to Maverick Podcasting. And and the reason it being is that you know, I mean, as you guys know, podcasting is such a cool medium with the right equipment, you can take it with you anywhere in the world. And it's the kind of thing that more and more people are actually, including myself, are doing you know, for profit in, in the sense that you can now take your work with you on the road and go anywhere and, and maintain productivity. And that's one of the coolest things about technology these days is that more and more people are working from home. A lot of companies are actually encouraging people to work from home because they're more comfortable in that environment. And sometimes it actually uh, in, uh, interrupts their workflow and their daytime you know, happenings even less because they can tend to matters while they're getting work done wherever they are. So, you know, I just love that that's where technology is taking us, you know, that flexibility. I love to travel, so that's super cool. And yeah, the podcasting thing is conducive to that. So I've, I'm kind of getting more and more involved, which is why when, when Jim said the video thing, we can't do this anymore, just too labor intensive. I said, why don't we just do a podcast? With Blab, we can still just record that audio and put that up as a podcast. And again, I think that's the cool thing. But so you'll be able to see this as a Blab, but I'm actually collecting the audio, and we'll be publishing that on iTunes and Stitcher and like uh, you know similar sites as just an audio podcast too. Because you know, as you guys know, I mean, the majority of shows, even video shows, the majority of the downloads. Leo Laporte ta always talks about this. He does his whole you know tech show with the video and everything, but he always says that by and large, the the the, the largest number of people who download his shows go for the audio podcast because they can listen to that while they're working. They can, you know, take it with them on a drive. They can listen to it, you know, while they're out jogging. You know, audio podcasts are unique for that reason. So, you know, that's another reason why I just love the stuff. Glad you guys are, are doing this new podcast for that reason, too. Well, that's it always surprises me so much that 
the statistics show that that po- audio podcasts are incredibly popular and right now with where we are in in media and marketing with how powerful and important visuals are and and the role video plays in that there is still that extremely large audience that wants that audio content that they can take with them and listen to while they're driving or riding the train or whatever every day because there's so much dead time and you want to i i guess it doesn't stop people from looking at their phones because they are anyway, but they're looking at their phones and listening to something else at the same time. So they're multitasking, I guess, is why they're doing that. But uh, it is interesting. I do love the podcast as a form of media. And so my my question about, what what is the name of the show, the video show, Paranormal Report? Yeah, that was the Paranormal Report, which again, thanks to Blab, is going to be video again. And by the way, stop the press. Maureen Ellsbury just joined me on Blab. I know. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That is how quick technology travels. I am multitasking over here. So you're talking about (laughs) saving the audio, multi-purpose there, creating uh, more pieces of content with that that same show, the video and the audio separately. Does uh, does Blab give you the the option to save the video too and put that up for on-demand viewing later, or is that a live-only situation? I believe actually there's a record button that does allow you to uh, to actually take the uh, broadcast. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, cool. exactly. So I mean, if you think about something where you can record these broadcasts in that sense, you can also capture the audio. Uh, so because this thing that is missing from podcasts, you know, if I sit down on a show like we're doing right now, you know, what, what's missing is like when we're sitting at a table all together, hoboing, and we're drinking and we're enjoying the company. You know, this this is like an eye-to-eye, you know, reach out and grab somebody kind of a thing. Well, you don't have that, you know, with distance. We're all in different parts of the United States doing this. And that's what I love about technology is it brings us together and it opens that path when before, you know, we had at very best telephones and snail mail. I mean, again, technology is really helping. But with Blab and with, you know, video chatting, it's getting to be more and more reliable where you can see these people. You can have the visual interaction. You can play off of one another and, and have that kind of stimuli in addition to the audio you're recording. So that is something I definitely like about the Blab format, as well as Skype and whatnot. Uh, Google Hangouts is kind of doing the same thing. But between you know you and I, my experience with Google Hangouts has been very different from Blab. I think that Blab has more potential for fun and for usability. But you got to admit there's an awful lot of cool stuff about Google Hangouts just as well, which allows some of those same sorts of uh, functions, by the way. Well, yeah, and talking about fun, I mean, Google Hangouts lets you – Put a mustache on yourself or a sombrero or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost spit my coffee out, Jason. Easy now. <laughs> I actually wear a fake mustache and a sombrero when I'm doing, uh, you know, video casts anyway. So, you know, that just preempts anybody being able to put one on me. Already with <laughs> <laughs> Ahead of the game, I like it. Well, yep. in addition to your podcasting, you know, you do a, you podcast on a variety of topics, but uh, we're talking about UFOs and aliens today. And I know you make your rounds at uh, some conferences now and again, uh, lecturing on the topic as well. And recently, you were at this interesting sounding conference called the Space and Alien Snow Fest. So I'd love to hear about uh, that event and your experience there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wish all three of you had been there. Uh, and for the listeners, uh, you know, we, we've all, the, the three of us, or I'm sorry, the four of us, you're these three guys and myself, we've we've all been to a lot of conferences together. And that was the very first thing I was thinking while I was at this one. I kid you not. It was a lot of fun. Part of what made this fun that was the fact that it was kind of a smaller crowd. And so it was a little more intimate. It wasn't, in, you know, insanely large. And, and it wasn't this 
you know, this social movement kind of thing. There was a, a, a very uh, interesting variety of people. My day <laughs> arriving in California was very interesting because I arrived at the airport. The twin brother of the conference organizer picks me up in a Dodge Challenger, and he says, I'm here uh, on strict orders from my bro to pick you and Stanton Freeman up. So I told him, I said, give me five minutes. I'll go inside this airport. I bet you I can find Stanton. And I went in the door, turned left, and there he was. He was, he was standing right there. So I went up and uh, I thought, you know, now Stanton's 81. I haven't seen him since uh, – actually, I think the last time I saw him was the 2013 uh, International UFO Congress. I walked up to him. I said, Stanton, Micah Hanks here. And he looked at me. He looked me up and down. And he goes, Micah, you look, you look so much better than last time. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> So, but, um, we had such a great time. We get in the car and we're driving out through, uh, California and headed up toward the mountains. We're talking about, you know, Hynek and Hendry and the center for UFO studies. We're talking about really got deeply into Philip J class. Uh, we began talking about the possible NSA. Oh, there's one of those code words. They're listening. They were listening before it didn't matter. Uh, but talking about the, talking about the NSA UFO files, um, and I have to say, this was a, a unique opportunity because I've met Stan many times. You guys have too. But I had never been in a car with him for five hours. And this was such a treat. We I'm had sure that's a different experience. Five hours was, in a car with anyone is a different experience. Yeah. Well, it was just fascinating because we stopped in Riverside, California for lunch. And uh, the weather was like spring here in the mountains of Asheville. Uh, and uh, it, it just felt so nice. It was this outdoor little kind of dining area. There were these little fountains. We started talking about the Valendich disappearance, which he had looked into. He'd been one of the very first people, incidentally, to bring that to my attention about six years ago. And, uh, for, of course, I've done a lot of research into that particular case, including having gotten to know uh, Frederick Valentich's, uh well, it wasn't his widow. It had been his girlfriend at the time, Rhonda Rushton, who I've spoken with personally, and uh, still working on that case. Uh, you know, it was fascinating to be able to share these thoughts, uh, Stanton's feelings that maybe there was, if not a direct uh, operative or, or a clearance kind of capacity, that at very least in an informant capacity, that class may have worked more closely with central intelligence and other kinds of agencies. And so to have this experience, yeah, it was surreal to say the least. And uh, we got to Big Bear, great time at the conference. You know, Dolan was there, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, who also got to spend a lot of time with and had a very interesting several discussions. And I have to say, I, I got to watch my team, the Carolina Panthers, get their butts kicked by the Broncos, sitting there drinking wine with Linda Moulton Health. I never thought I'd ever go to a Super Bowl party with Linda Moulton Health, <laughs> <laughs> but but I did, and it was really awesome. So, uh, and plus the attendees were really great. Uh, I could even tell you guys, I felt like I almost connected very spiritually with a lot of the people there, and um, it was just a really great time. Awesome. What was uh, what was your talk about, Micah? I was scheduled to give two lectures, and because Super Bowl Sunday fell on the last day, I only actually ended up having uh, time for one. The, the lecture I gave was called The UFO Enigma, and uh, where I went with this was, you know, although this was a UFO-friendly conference, um, I was doing the opening lecture, and by de facto, interestingly, I was doing a lot of emceeing. I try not to do too much emceeing and things at these events, believe it or not, anymore at least. I used to, and the reason why is because... You know, you start doing one thing and people recognize that one thing is being what you do. What you do. Uh, I was backstage. George Norrie comes up. My God, great to see you. Puts his arms around me. Have you got your guitar? He wanted to know if I had my guitar, you know, and, and if we could do some songs and stuff, you know. And uh, and I've always told you guys this, you know, that typically when I go to these events, I want to go there to be able to speak. 
And this lecture, Ryan, was primarily about applying science to ufology. I actually brought out some of the very best photographs that I've acquired over the years of uh, various different kinds of UAP, as it were. Um, one involving the alleged brown mountain lights. I think this is a natural plasma. And there's a skeptical group, including an astronomy professor here at uh, ASU University in Boone, North Carolina, Dan Caton. Um, very skeptical guy, someone I also respect an awful lot because of his interest in the uh, Brown Mountain phenomena for a number of years. And a couple of really good friends of mine from Bell Laboratories managed to, to capture what I feel is one of the best sequences of photographs that shows one of the purported Brown Mountain lights over Table Rock, which I think the photo was taken in 2010. Uh, so that was one of the slides. Also, a, a unique photograph that was sent to me by a gentleman uh, who is a digital archivist. He believed it was a classic daylight disc photographed near Edwards Air Force Base sometime in the 1950s. Um, this photograph, as it turns out, I'm convinced was a lenticular cloud, but I nonetheless was able to you know, incorporate that into the lecture because the whole point is to be able to, like the Center for UFO Studies and many other groups have done over the years, to try and really learn scientifically, if scientific ufology is what we're after here, to identify UFOs. You know, the IFOs are important to understand so that the genuine UFOs can be better studied. And so looking at plasmas, looking at, you know, different kind of atmospheric phenomena like the lenticular cloud formations, uh, looking at a lot of different things. Then finally bringing out a photograph sent to me by a Texas police officer. Uh, this occurred uh, in conjunction with the famous Stephenville UFO incident. Many people always talk about Oh, you know, it had been a bunch of flares that were dropped, and it was just that one series of lights, and that was the whole incident. Well, that may be true, in part, that there was a series of probably what were flares that were dropped, and that people saw these and probably thought that they were a UFO. But around that time, a lot of people were describing aerial phenomena around Texas, particularly in the Stephenville area. And this particular police officer had sent this photo to a friend of mine years ago. I'm no longer in touch with this individual, which which is a bit uh, frustrating. Because the photograph, uh, although it's maybe not the most wow in your face UFO photograph, it's interesting nonetheless. It does appear to show two orange amorphous uh, illuminations that, as the police officer described, had been hovering over the ground. He and, and his uh, partner, who was in the passenger seat of the patrol car, they pull up onto this field. They see these two lights hovering, and as they begin ascending, he gets out of the car and grabs, of all things, he had a film camera in the car with him. Which sounds kind of funny for this day and age, but I'll point out that in 2001, the January incident that occurred there in southern Illinois, which is uh, known by some as the St. Clair County UFO incident, where many police officers across many different municip uh, municipal police departments observed one of these large triangular uh, objects. Um, the police officer that managed to get a photograph had a Polaroid camera in his car. <laughs> so as strange and retro as that sounds, it seems that law enforcement agencies you know, until within maybe the last 15 years or so, it's, it's been standard practice to keep film cameras in the car with them. I hope maybe by now many of them are using digital cameras or better yet, phones now. But I digress. This photograph not only shows these two globes that were spotted by the officers ascending toward a craft. There's this craft that's illuminated by three points of greenish light. And what's even more, more interesting to me, this is the, the optical physis, uh, physicist in me. Bruce McAbee might be pleased when he if you heard that I spotted this, but in this photograph, while people are generally looking at the, the, the blatant objects, there are three smaller points of illumination that are in the lower right-hand uh, area of the photograph, which is mostly darkened. It was you know at night, and the photograph was taken aiming upward, looking up into the sky, and it seems evident to me that the three points of visible light that appear... What? Siri? Gosh, sorry about that, guys. 
Seriously, <laughs> a little nuts. <laughs> she had something to contribute to the topic. Apparently. I had to, uh, yeah, I'd like it's, to it's, Siri, the government is trying to shut you up from whatever you're just about to reveal about this photograph. Yeah, it was remarkable <laughs> that Siri was listening to that. So uh, anyway, I, honey, I want to come back and hear what you have to say here in just a second, but I'm, I'm, we're live right now. So <laughs> that was bizarre. <laughs> that was re- I've never had that happen. Wow. That was so, weird. So the long story short is, is that uh, the three points of light, i.e. the two uh, amorphous orange orbs, and then the apparent craft that they were ascending toward, uh, I think are represented... Uh, although in reverse positioning by three points of light, which are obviously the reflection of the lights off of the lens of the camera itself. And I know this because I've ab- actually observed this in similar photographs. We <laughs> managed to, uh, um, uh, in, in the non-antagonistic uh, sense of the term, we have managed to debunk uh, certain UFO photographs by observing this same phenomena, the reflection of lights off of the lens of a camera. So long story short, this same sort of reflective pattern in reverse and upside down appears in this photograph, which I do think lends credibility to the objects. And maybe a good optical physicist would be able to look at that and even be able to determine something about the distance either between the objects or possibly their distance from the camera based on measurements that could be made in the known curvature and size of the uh, camera lens. So, you know, it's interesting because these kind of things, when you start digging deeply enough into it, it's not just a UFO photograph. It's a photo that tells a story. And so all of these things, Ryan, were really what I incorporated into this uh, this lecture, which was well-received considering that a lot of people kind of these days say, why, why are you worried with UFO research? We know they're here. You know, Stephen Bassett has even said we're beyond the, 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 the period of having to do ufology. We're in the, the disclosure era. No more need for ufology. We know they're here. I differ, and, and the, we have social movements that are now saying we don't need to do UFO research is a real problem to me. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, I don't... No. That's that's really irritating. Uh, and Jason and I say this all the time, too. It drives us crazy when we're posting about stuff and people comment, why are you even bothering? We already we know already they're here. Know. It's such a common phrase to people in the UFO uh, sort of field that this happens. And people don't get it that, yes, you may believe that they're already here, but there are a ton of people who don't, A, and we don't have really concrete proof that's going to prove to everyone that extraterrestrial life is visiting Earth. And, and that's, that's why the this is o- important. Over, over generalization too. Like, they are here, so we don't need to probe any further. Like, okay, they, because you are convinced that some sort of extraterrestrial is here, that means every UFO we see is that particular race of extraterrestrial. Like, let's give up. We already know all of the aliens are here. Yay. We know everything about all of the aliens. It, it's right. fr- it's frustrating. We just throw throw research and, and curiosity and exploration out the window because we may have discovered one thing. No, not at all. The phenomena is huge. There's so many related phenomena to UFOs, and we know nothing. Mm-hmm. Even if we know a little bit, we still know nothing, and there's so much out there to learn. So, you know, I, I get really frustrated with people who even, you know, looking at what is considered the most basic level, the, the lights in the sky, they think that there's no point in researching that, looking into that, investigating possible sources for that. I think that's absolutely ridiculous and irresponsible. Yeah. Oh, it certainly is. You know, it, I, I've as a result of the very sorts of things you guys are all just pointing out right there, uh, you know, I have over the last few years begun to kind of ask you know, what am I actually trying to do as far as UFO research goes? Now, I mean, I've, already, I've always known that uh, 
I've wanted to be a person who tries to look scientifically at actual phenomena. You know, I, I spend a lot of time at locations like Brown Mountain and uh, and other places where purported sightings are, are uh, you know, alleged to occur. That is one of the problems and always has been with UFOs is that this is a phenomena that can tend to kind of occur randomly. Uh, you, you never really know when or where you might need to be at any given time uh, with, you know, with the, the likeliest potential that a UFO is going to show up. So, and while I believe that, for instance, the Brown Mountain Light phenomena is clearly some form of natural phenomena, it is, I think, uh, nonetheless a way that we can learn and observe and study what appears to be a form of aerial phenomena that's illuminative and very much like, and probably constitutes, uh, you know, a similar phenomena to what is reported in a lot of these UFO reports. But the thing is, is by the same token, I look at, you know, not to attack someone like Stephen Bassett. I've interviewed him and, you know, hung out with him a good bit. You guys have. Um, I think Steve's a nice guy. Uh, I, I really think I actually appreciate the work that he does. But it's interesting that suddenly for many UFO research, as it is, has become a a political movement. Um, when you go to these events and you see people showing up, you know, with antennas and tinfoil hats, you know, and glow in the dark, you know, trinkets all over them. I mean, you can kind of see that it's a social movement. They feel like they're a part of something bigger than they are by themselves. I think that's what we all really want. I would argue in equal measure that the skeptical movement of today is just as much a social movement as replete with the same dogmatism that belief-oriented UFO research uh, tends to be associated with, which really, to me, often isn't even research. It's merely advocacy. And so as things have come down, and this really is really, I think, just happened in the last few months. I kind of got into a point when we entered the winter months. I got back from England last year speaking at a UFO conference there in uh, Leeds, which was remarkable. I, in fact, I went down to London afterward and spent a couple of days with Mark Pilkington, director of the film Mirage Men. Um, I, I bring his name up often and people are like, oh, well, you, you're friends with Mark? He's one of them. Well, actually, Mark's probably more in line with me in terms of uh, my own thoughts about the UFO phenomena than many people I've met, maybe with the exception of you guys. He's a, he's a very warm, generous person. I think he did a great job with his book and his documentary. I think that he employs the necessary skepticism without ruling out possibilities, and I'm, I'm certain that he thinks that there are strange phenomena and actual quote-unquote UFOs, but he doesn't jump to conclusions without you know, facts and data that, that merit those kinds of conclusions. And so, you know, for me, ever since coming back from England and the very positive experience I had with the English UFO researchers, and I have to say that community does approach this subject very differently from the, the, the American audiences. It's, it's a very different, at times I think even slightly more intellectual approach that they employ. Talk about that a little bit. I'm curious to hear about that. Well, yeah. I'll give you an example. Here's, here's kind of what, what I mean. When we do research here in the United States, most UFO researchers are journalists and historians. Uh, you know, Richard Dolan, uh, who is probably, I would say, contributed with his two and now three volume set with UFOs in the national security state. He's contributed some of the most meaningful historical commentary to the UFO phenomena. Now, where I differ with Rich, and he knows this, and we get along great. I have a rule, and I told this to Linda Moulton Howe at breakfast uh, while we were out in California together. I said, I can love someone dearly and be friends with them and cherish that friendship for life, and I may not agree with a word they say. That's kind of how I feel with a lot of people in the UFO community. I don't agree 100% with probably anybody, but that doesn't make them an enemy. You know, right. I find that I have more common ground with people uh, than, well, of course, you know, folks, I guess, on the debunker side of the skeptic thing, and we'll come back around to that. In America, though, it is primarily uh, kind of investigative journalism and historical research. Part of the reason I think that that is is because of the difficulty in being able to get out to a site and spot a UFO or know when one's going to show up. 
So the research that ends up going on, although it can be scientific, is often done after the fact, which usually is reporting on the case and what the witnesses said that they saw, much like a, a journalist would do, or collection and interpretation of a broader uh, you know, swath of data collected over the years, which is really kind of what the historian does. Scientists often do this. But even if you look at Stanton Friedman, when I spoke with him on our way up there to uh, Big Bear in the car, I said, you know, you're a nuclear physicist and a person who is almost really played the role of an investigative historian and journalist by going to the National Archives, digging up files and things like this. You know, that's not necessarily scientific work. He is a journalist and a researcher and a writer who is informed by his uh, you know, extensive background in nuclear physics as a scientist, which has made him unique among researchers. In England, and I think many people here in the United States would kind of look at English researchers as being more skeptical, but I find that those researchers, yes, they are somewhat more skeptical. Rather than leaping toward the quote-unquote UFO equals alien convention of extraterrestrial hypotheses, um, English researchers, as I find, have gravitated largely toward attempting to look for natural and man-made causes that may constitute ufological phenomena. Uh, the Official Secrets Act, I guess, has also been more conducive to the release of UFO documents from the MOD, uh, as our friend Nick Pope will tell us about. But the other thing, too, that's interesting is that this conference I spoke out uh, that my friend Anthony Beckett put on, he's a chemist by trade. I got to his house, and he had Harvey Rutledge's book. Uh, what was the, uh, the book? It's called uh, uh, Project Identification, the First Scientific Field Study of UFO Phenomena. Uh, again, a physicist's aims at trying to study UFOs. He had Tragedy and Hope by uh, Professor Carol Quigley. You know, these are the kind of books in his UFO library. That was immediately a great experience. And his focus was much like mine. He was trying to understand Earthlights and Earthlight phenomena. But he's putting on a conference called the British Exopolitics Summit. Of all things, despite the term exopolitics being in the name of all the subjects that repeatedly came up throughout the course of the weekend, the one preeminently was the secret space program, this idea about some technology, whether or not influenced by something from someplace else, but a technology that is from here uh, primarily and which is built by us. So it's interesting that in England, they do tend to kind of have a little more of a down-to-earth, I think, uh, perspective on what UFOs may be, whereas here in the United States, we do have social movements, political movements even, which are aiming to get the release of the extraterrestrial data, which I think really we need a little bit more information to be able to assume that that is indeed what the government's hiding. I'm sure they're hiding something. I'm not sure it's alien. Hmm. Well, Micah, you are speaking of exopolitics. I, I read a recent article of yours. Um, I, I don't know exactly how recent uh, about, you know, sort of science and the UFO phenomenon and how that can be pitted, pitted against philosophy. Um, would you care to elaborate on how you feel philosophy could help solve some, possibly some of these mysteries or your thoughts in general on philosophy either being dead or, um, or a way to look further into these phenomena? Yeah, that's a good question, Ryan. Let me tell you this. Okay, so we know uh, Sir Stephen Hawking, physicist who I admire greatly, and I've read a number of his books, uh, even though a lot of them, he refers to them as being unreadable because of the technical matter. And I'm not talking about a brief history of time. It's his other stuff that he wrote before that that is indeed very much more technically oriented, and one has to push themselves through it and often be able to have reference materials on hand to do so. <laughs> but And I don't claim to be able to understand all of it, but I, I am a, a student of the sciences, self-taught, by the way, largely. Um, you know, I've got a little, a little chemistry hobby, uh, you know, uh, lab here at, at uh, the Grayland Bunker, in fact, and uh, I, I am very serious about my scientific pursuits as, as a hobby and, a, and as a, uh, a supplement to my research. Now, that said, you know, Hawking is someone who 
by virtue of being a brilliant physic, uh, you know, a physical scientist, he will say that philosophy is dead. Uh, he specifically said on the last uh, couple of pages in um, A Brief History of Time that the most well-known and eminent philosopher of his day, Ludwig Wittgenstein, said uh, that all that was left for philosophers to study was language. That uh, I don't know is I don't know if that's really a fair statement uh, for him to say that language is dead, and the reason why is because of Wittgenstein. Well, let's just point out that Wittgenstein was a professor, of course, at Cambridge, uh, as Hawking is and remains. I believe he's still a Lucasian professor of mathematics even to this day, despite his disabilities. Hawking, of course, may not have taken into consideration that Wittgenstein was the most visible philosopher to him, by virtue of where he was, and maybe also uh, in part due to his uh, disabilities. But I will also point out that Wittgenstein was no less influential. His Tractata was a treatise all on language. And what he was really saying was not that philosophers only need to study language. He was saying that behind every word, if we break down or even remove language, concepts exist. And that words are our feeble attempts at trying to express concepts which remain that are deeper. And in that sense, we can also see that when someone says something like philosophy is dead, well, let's think, what do you mean by philosophy? Do you mean philosophy in total? Do you mean classical philosophy, epistemology, you know, ethics or morals? I would not like to think that that's dead. I think the proper question to ask is if one says philosophy is dead, have we asked a philosopher what he thinks about that? Or is Sir Stephen most qualified to make a statement along those lines? Let's get more to the point. He also says about UFOs that UFOs uh, he discounts in the search for alien life because why, if they existed, would they only show themselves to cranks and weirdos? Now, of course, we know from the work of journalists the likes of uh, Leslie Kane and many others over the years that only cranks and weirdos see UFOs. We know, of course, that going back to the Blue Book era, that only cranks and weirdos were seeing UFOs when we actually had government officials. You know, Captain Jack Puckett of Strategic Air Command, 1946, prior to Kenneth Arnold, reported a near mid-air collision on his way to MacDill Air Force Base in the summer of that year, he said it was a large rocket-like fuselage with no wings, two illuminated rows of windows, the, the size roughly double the size of the fuselage of a B-17 bomber, and that it was producing a thick red plume of smoke as it passed by his aircraft, nearly colliding with him, going a thousand miles an hour, he estimated. He signed a sworn affidavit about this, which, of course, a breath after the Second World War, this would have been of highest national security interest, that there might be what was at that time and could have only been interpreted as being possibly an enemy craft. This would have been a horrible thing for him to hoax or to lie about or to make up. Crank? Weirdo? I think not. The reason that we need philosophy when it comes to UFOs is because science is really what we use. It is the, our best attempt today at gathering data and, and interpreting uh, the, the natural world around us. But it began with philosophy philosophy and logical inquiry uh, was the, the primordial pool from which the slime eventually crawled that became modern science. Um, there are still questions which, for instance, if the universe had a beginning, what came before that? Now, Hawking will be quick to tell you that since that is not something that science can probably determine, that thus is not a question that science seeks to explain. Thus, you know, all such things as, you know, an afterlife, death, God, you know, all of these kinds of concepts are are likened to being questions that science does not seek to address. Now, if science does not seek to address these questions, but they are nonetheless relevant and meaningful to us as, you know, thinking creatures, well, is it fair to say that no one should address those questions, or merely that if science doesn't, perhaps someone else should? Hence the philosopher. I think that there's very easily a case to be made that philosophy is still important, 
philosophy working in conjunction with science and mathematics can help kind of temper science and move it in a productive direction. And I think that in equal measure, science at times can, or rather scientists, can tend to get so dogmatic and also so uh, skeptical that the spirit of innovation potentially might be hindered by a scientist who is not willing to think enough outside the box. So we do need philosophy, and as it applies to UFOs, when a scientist, probably like they'd say about creation, you know, God, death, whatever, you know, that, well, UFOs aren't a, a subject that science seeks to address, well, perhaps a philosopher should ask a scientist, why do you think that? You know, if it's a physical, tangible, apparent phenomena in our world, what about that should science not seek to address? Hence, I have fundamentally come back to all, to the point of thinking that philosophy is important in relation to UFOs. So, you know, whether or not you want to call me a UFO philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point, though. I mean, I think it was Heineck who said, you know, uh, scientists often forget that there will be a 22nd century, there'll be a 30th century, there'll be so on and so on, and that, you know, there is th there are things yet to be discovered. and. Sometimes yeah. science can hinder that. So, yeah. and, and Ryan, I'll say also really quickly that uh, I saw a PSYCOP article, well, SCI now, but uh, you know, formerly the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, and the article was, was called The Secret Life of J. Allen Hynek. And it, it, the first issue it took with him was the fact that when he was a young teenager, you know, rather than going out and playing sports and stuff like everybody else, he had saved up money and bought a copy of Manly Palmer Hall's The Secret Teaching of All Ages. I own a copy of that book. And uh, in, in terms of being a, a book on hermeticism and philosophy uh, and as it relates to occult traditions worldwide, I mean, I think it's one of the most valuable books that's been written, if you're interested in that kind of thing, that a skeptical organization would use that as a point against an astronomer, a man who, after, of course, purchasing this book and trying to further himself intellectually at a young age, then, of course, he enters the sciences with hopes of trying to better understand the unknown mysteries of the world. You know, that this would be a point of criticism is just, it's just ridiculous to me. The modern skeptical atheist movement, also a social movement, which is informed by the ideology of the mass, not by the individual, in my opinion. It's just shameful that skeptics have become so skeptical that they won't even allow for an astronomer to read about such things as the occult and hermeticism. These things, they may not be directly relevant to a physicist or an astronomer, but that doesn't mean that these subjects are irrelevant altogether. And I think it's just disgraceful the way that the so-called skeptic movement today has become one that says if 90% of all UFOs can be explained, as many would agree, by the way, then why not 100%? That's their whole modus operandi when it comes to this subject. If we can explain 90, we can explain 100%. I think, therefore, it is not. It's like reverse Cartesianism, and frankly, it's bad science. Well said. Yeah. Well, Mike, I know that philosophy is something that occupies a pretty large chunk of your mind and something you talk about a lot. And uh, you're, you're, you're a thinker. You like to think uh, probably as much as you like to talk, and that's probably a good thing. So, <laughs> thinker means a podcaster. <laughs> that's right. So uh, tell, let our audience know where they can go to listen to more of your philosophizing as well as uh, your other content that you're putting out on a regular basis. Yeah, well, for those who haven't gotten enough uh, as it is, this might be enough to last anybody a year, just the short time we spent together today, and thank you for that. Uh, but if people would like to learn more about me, uh, my podcast is The Graylian Report, and the website is com. and then there's my website, micahanks.com. And, 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 you know, as far as podcasts go, there's also the Maverick Podcasting website, Maverick, Maverick Podcast, uh, yeah, let me think here, maverickpodcasting.org. There we go. Yeah. 
So those are the ways to find me. And of course, people can always email me info at micahanks.com or follow me on Twitter at Micah Hanks. I've got my own name. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and and fo- uh, subscribe to his paranormal uh, report, Blab on Blab, like I just, just like did. Marine. Yep. <laughs> awesome. All right, Micah, it's been fun. Thanks for hanging out with us, buddy. My pleasure. If you want to follow the works of Mr. Hanks, like he said, his website is graylianreport.com. That's G-R-A-L-I-E-N report.com. As always, if you have a UFO sighting or story you want to share with us, we'd love to hear that. Use the contact form on our website, that's rogueplanet.tv, and send those to us. UFO Mod Pod can always be found on rogueplanet.tv, but we're also on Stitcher, iTunes, and some other places too. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a stellar review if you enjoy the show. And if you like getting newsletters, we've got a pretty cool newsletter. So go to our website, sign up for our free strange newsletter at rogueplanet.tv. Thanks again to Micah for hanging out with us today. And thank you for joining us for this episode of UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Maureen Ellsbury. Thanks for letting us pollute your mind once again. (laughs) 